My name is Kelly McBride, and I'm a technical advisor on mental health and psychosocial support for the IFRC Reference Center for Psychosocial Support. And you are listening to Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement, working with mental health and psychosocial support services. In this episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Adam Brown, Director of the Trauma and Global Mental Health Lab at the Department of Psychology at the New School for Social Research in New York. Orso Munagina with SOS Children's Villages International, Global Hub on Mental Health and Psychosocial Support, and our very own Sarah Harrison, Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Technical Advisor for the IFRC Psychosocial Center. Today, we will be talking about the Intervention Journal article, Building Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Capacity During a Pandemic, the process of adapting program management plus for remote training and implementation during COVID-19 in New York City, Europe, and East Africa. All right. So Adam, um, can you tell us a little bit about why we carried out remote trainings of Problem Management Plus in the first place? What inspired this? Sure. So I think to talk about why we did this, we have to take a little bit of a step back prior to COVID-19. So prior to COVID-19, there was an increasing recognition and curiosity in places like New York City about whether we can learn things about mental health and psychosocial support capacity building in other countries and other contexts and consider bringing them to places like the U.S. and specifically to New York City, where even if the mental health gaps and challenges aren't identical, there are some similarities that I think really lend itself to learning opportunities between other kinds of contexts where this work is taking place and the kinds of challenges that people in places like New York experience. And so we'd actually started to think about bringing together people to get trained in PM Plus in New York City in person prior to COVID. And then, of course, around March of last year, uh, we suddenly realized that that would not be possible. But yet the demands and the challenges were more urgent than ever. Uh, so it was really at that time where we started to think about, are there ways that we could adapt the way trainings are usually done? And can we do this remotely so we could both uh, think about building capacity in response to COVID-19, but also do it in a way that is safe for everyone during this time? Great. So you'd been thinking about it already, but then um, because COVID-19 kind of forced us to change the way we were doing things, you decided um, to see if if we could go about the training remotely. Exactly. And it was a bigger question than I think I realized. And, you know, when I started thinking about this, I was just so grateful to hear that other people were thinking about this at the same time. Because as soon as we started to wonder about the possibility of adapting this to a remote training, we realized it just generated lots and lots of other questions about how to do this effectively and appropriately. Great. And also, you know, Adam was in New York and and the group we worked with was in New York, um, but your context was quite different. Um, So kind of a similar question to you. Can you tell us about um, what inspired you to want to do PM Plus trainings in the first place and then um, to shift it to remote? Well, I relate quite a lot to what uh, Adam was saying, but uh, let's say so there was really a sort of a push factor due to the COVID pandemic. We anticipated an increase in demand for mental health services within our current programs. And the largest majority of programs we run are family strengthening programs where we provide uh, support 
to families, including mental health and psychosocial support. Uh, this family had multiple problems, and, um, and we were looking for an intervention that could address some of these uh, problematics, uh, but also being acceptable, potentially available to the greatest number of people possible, and uh, easily scalable. So PM Plus uh, met uh, all of these criteria. And uh, when COVID-19 uh, started, I remember being talking with, uh, with Adam a lot about this. Uh, we also thought it was relatively easy to adapt the training uh, remotely, and little we knew about that. So it was certainly possible, but not so, so straightforward. And, uh, but, it, but definitely was uh, uh, something we, we were already, as, as Adam said, also for this, uh, um, for this cohort, we were already considering to add into our current programs. And so, um, Sarah, I guess over to you. So you and I were both trainers um, for Remote Problem Management Plus. And so... Yeah. I'm just curious from your perspective what it means to take what would have originally been a face-to-face training and then we converted it to remote. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of your initial thoughts about that process? Yeah, well, I had the advantage, of course, that you had already done it before me with the um, with the cohort from New York um, with Adam as well. So I wasn't really the the first. I could I could actually take a lot of the lessons learned from that training, even though the context was quite different because it was working with um, clinical psychology students um, from a university in a higher income industrialized country. And I was working with multiple SOS national associations across um, Africa, many countries in Africa and also in Europe. Um, And I think it's it's one of those things that if you knew how much it actually took to do it, you probably wouldn't start doing it Um, because it's the manual is there. The 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 facilitator's manual for Problem Management Plus, um, it needed quite a bit of adaptation, both to put it online, but also some of the exercises also needed changing. Um, And there's a deeper thought process um, from the adaptation of that manual um, to make the exercises as kind of as as concrete as possible online, but also as interactive as possible online, um, because you don't have the same things like space in a room um, to, to divide people um, you can't um, observe in, in the same way. Um, it's actually easier on Zoom, um, or we did it on Zoom, it's actually easier observing things like role plays because you can visit individual breakout rooms where we, we put different participants to practice some of the, the key skills. Um, but it, is, it doesn't make it shorter because it's online. Um, I, the training is exactly the same length, actually, as what it would be if it was um, face-to-face. Um, but it does; it did require quite a bit of adaptation from the original manual, I think, as well. Yeah, and so we, you know, between our trainings, they were around seventy-five to eighty-hour trainings, um, and they they took place, you know, um, both with online kind of these live sessions that you were talking about, Sarah, as well as um, kind of some offline work. Um, can you guys tell me a little bit, and maybe we'll start. Um, with Adam since we began with the New York cohort. Um, So a group of your students, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that training looked like and kind of how it evolved um, through the 10 days that we were together? Sure. And just to contextualize this a little bit, um, the world was 
and continues to be going through so many layers and levels of challenges that not only were we thinking about how to remotely adapt PM Plus for responding to the intense and urgent challenges of COVID-19 in places like New York City, um, but we were also watching and participating and observing uh, many of the social and political responses um, to the murders of people like George Floyd and others over the summer and really watching uh, the Black Lives Matter movement really coalesce um, and take shape at that time. And so it was a very powerful moment, but also a very stressful one, um, I think, for the team who had raised their hand to participate in the training, where, you know, on the one hand, they were very committed to learning and engaging in this 80-hour uh, training, but also, like any other time, people are also processing everything that's going on around them. But it was in, a, I think, a, a somewhat unfamiliar moment where people were processing a lot um, and processing it, you know, from remote places, from digital places. Um, and so when we got to the training, um, I think even before we started, there was a little bit of skepticism and burnout just from life um, and some big questions about how are we going to do this and why do I need to be doing this right now? Um, and then it was really just kind of amazing to see how once people built a community around it, even remotely, um, the engagement and the focus really started to come together. But I don't want to give the impression that from the very beginning, everyone was just on board and it was easy to do. There was certainly a growth process that happened as people began to both, I think, trust the process to really understand the rationale for why they were learning what they were learning. But really, I think it was about that sense of community that had to come together um, that facilitated the learning that eventually took place. I think that's such an important point that, you know, there was a lot going on during that moment, during our training. Um, and, you know, I definitely know from my perspective, but it sounds like your perspective as well, Adam, that we were able to kind of build this sense of cohesion and community that, you know, I know we see a lot in face-to-face -face trainings, but it seemed that it was possible to really create that over the span of 10 days um, online through, through a virtual platform. Yeah, if I could, you know, I would just say that it was wonderful to see as the training went on, people recognizing each other's skills, people being very open to learning from each other and encouraging one another. Um, and just starting to see not only in what people said, but the nonverbal body language, just showing appreciation um, and people just really pointing out when someone was demonstrating a particular skill or competency. Um, and what I think we ultimately began to see was just a lot of gratitude and a lot of, um, yeah, just appreciation for the ways people were acquiring these, these skills and doing so in a rather unfamiliar context. And so you're mentioning certain things that I think we were able to demonstrate on the camera. We were able to see each other, but also in Sarah, um, you know, the context that you were training in, um, in East Africa and Europe, the internet connections weren't quite as stable as we had in New York City. Um, can you tell me if you felt like it was possible to build that similar sense of cohesion um, with your group, given the technology challenges? Um, do you mind yeah, just sharing a bit about your experience there? Yeah, I can say that from a facilitator's perspective, it was certainly possible. Um, we were lucky in the fact that um, majority of the participants knew each other. 
um, or had some connection either through their, their broader work within the SOS Federation, um, but also um, some of the, the national associations also had two participants from them. So, for example, there were two from Rwanda, two from Burundi, Somalia, Somaliland, etc. So it meant that there was a bit of familiarity already. Um, and also for some of the participants, the biggest actual hurdle, which um, we, which came, I think, in the, just in the first couple of days, and then they very effectively leaped over it, was in relation to the fact that this was the first online training that any of them had ever done. Um, and they had sat in meetings recently. Um, this is last year online. So they'd had, you know, an MS Teams meeting or a Zoom or a Skype meeting. They were very familiar with it or even very familiar with things like WhatsApp and, and social media, but were not familiar with sitting and participating in a training online and certainly not for 10 days. Um, and I think that that shift and that that skepticism, as you mentioned, Adam, was also there for, for this group. And in addition to, to the whole shift online is the fact that probably about 40% of the people, not all participants, but maybe 40% were also still working from home. Um, so they were also at home, you know, with kids running around. Um, as also childcare responsibilities don't stop. You are a parent, despite the fact you're also working at home. Um, so for them, they were having to get their head around, this is an online training. It's as kind of serious. It's as professional as if I was doing a face-to-face -face training, but I'm also sitting in my living room or I'm sitting at my kitchen table or my bedroom also doing it. Um, and in terms of internet connections, we actually Surprisingly, given the countries that were involved, we didn't have so many problems. And um, particularly the participants from the African National Associations, they are so used to kind of hacking and navigating their way around really poor internet that it's just part of their life and they expected it. So a lot of them had backups. So, for example, they would use the hotspot function on their telephone if their Wi-Fi went down at home or um, if it wasn't possible at all to, to join the meeting for that particular time because there was an internet outage, then they would practice doing some of the, the role plays or some of the conversations um, actually online, either in a WhatsApp call from their phones or just a direct phone call if the two people were in the same country um, as well. So that's kind of how we got around it. But there were big outages. Um, well, the biggest one was the fact that we couldn't have the participants from Ethiopia because there was an internet blackout virtually across across the country at the time for the whole 10 days of the training. Um, so that whole office, unfortunately, and participants from there couldn't join. Um, but it, I was actually surprised at how well it went, um, yeah, given the multiple contexts. Um, but I know also it probably wasn't as easy to to manage and set up the training if your regional office doesn't have internet. <laughs> Or so can you tell us a bit about your experience um, from kind of a coordination end, how it, how it went? Well, Sara put it very nicely, and I actually can confirm basically all she said. I must say, though, that um, there was a lot of work that I foresee did before. So I think lots of credit, if not all credit, has to be given to I foresee for having done uh, all the preparatory work that actually allow for this uh, experience to be interactive and participatory. For men now is a, is a sort of new normal to use uh, Zoom, Teams or whatever else and, uh, and other softwares like uh, Mural or Miro. Uh, but at the time for many of us, me included, was actually a very novel experience and we didn't have uh, capacity in doing that. 
So it was very good, for instance, to have someone um, helping us out with all the technological aspect connected with uh, um, participating and delivering a training online. Equally outside the classroom was really quite nice to have uh, uh, this uh, WhatsApp group um, or any other um, instant messages services that could somehow create a sense of uh, cohesion and a sense of belonging to a group. Uh, but that had to be nurtured and, uh, and there were some efforts also in order to do that. Um, so my reflection in general is definitely really positive. I, it was quite, I think, quite important. The, what happened in Ethiopia was really a sort of eye-opener because my expectation when we started with this uh, remote online training was also, oh, wow, finally we do have also an opportunity uh, to reach uh, places and, uh, and do trainings in a way that uh, we wanted to do, but we didn't really have the time or possibilities to do it before. Um, but internet, uh, let's say, having access to hardware and connectivity at home uh, can actually become also a new divide. Um, and so it's, it's very important to have, I would say, multiple approaches uh, ready at end, as, as Sarah said, ways to, to provide also adapted interventions through other means, um, which for us was a lessons learned. We did it in other contexts afterwards and, uh, and, and it worked well mm. in that sense. So it sounds like there is a fair amount of kind of creativity that went into how the training was conducted and then how to troubleshoot um, maybe when challenges arose. And, and this is something I think from my own experience, I learned a lot through the process. And a lot of that is because um, of you, actually, Adam, and um, your suggestion that we uh, work with one of your students at the time um, who was a bit more familiar with technology um, than perhaps I might have been at that point in time. Do you mind telling us a little bit about, um, you know, about Shona as we as we know her internally at the IFRC Psychosocial Center, um, just about how she came into the mix and and some of the ways that she helped us to adapt things to be online. Sure. Yeah. I'm um, always happy to talk about Shona. Uh, so Sudeshna Mahata, uh, who most people call Shona, uh, was I met her last year. She was a student in my global mental health master's class at the new school. Um, and it was just a fascinating class because it was made up of not only psychology students, but it was also made up of strategic design students from uh, Parsons, which is um, a school of design uh, within the new school. And you know, she and I spoke over the course of the semester about her interest in trying to bring aspects of public health and mental health more closely in alignment with human-centered and strategic design. And so, you know, Kelly, when we started thinking about what are the needs and challenges and barriers to making an effective online learning and training platform, I started to think back to some of those conversations that I had with Shona and asked her if she'd be interested in collaborating with us. And it was just so serendipitous and fortunate for us that she was available and interested in partnering, because I do think that was the third piece to this that really helped to bring it together. Um, it really wasn't just about knowing how to run a good training. It wasn't just knowing how to do good research. But it really was about that other perspective of having the appropriate and creative ways of using technology to be able to connect with everyone. And in some ways to create 
a virtual environment that felt as close to being in person as possible. And that was out of my skill set. And I think it's fair to say that you were also grateful to have her support as well. Very um, much so. <laughs> uh, but I was so, um, it was so eye-opening for me about the ways in which people are using technology uh, that facilitates really good conversation um, and learning in ways that I hadn't seen before. But, you know, and, and while I don't want to say that there's, you know, I'm not grateful for COVID in any ways, but I will say I've learned a lot during this moment, both from the IFRC, from my work with Shona, about things that I think we can take with us into the future um, that maybe we hadn't been thinking about as much prior to COVID, but I think can really help to build our capacity around training that really includes these strategic design and human-centered de- design approaches. And, you know, we're we're talking about this now because there's an article um, in the Intervention Journal um, that describes our process that we've taken here. And so it's, it's on building mental health and psychosocial support um, capacity during a pandemic. And so I'm just curious what, you know, what stimulated you or what stimulated us to write the piece on adapting problem management plus for remote training in the first place? Um, what's the point of this? Um, and maybe Adam, I'll kick that to you as well, because I think that you and I were quite involved in this process. I think we're going to look back on this time and reckon with the profound amount of challenges and loss that took place. I also think we're going to look back at this time as a moment of learning, especially in the digital space of how we stay connected and how we support people through things like training and capacity building in highly novel ways. And so personally, and I think, you know, through our conversations, Kelly and Orso and Sarah, I think we felt that it was really important to document this process, not only for learning now, but as we reflect back on what was taking place during this moment. Uh, Hopefully this will be an important, both historical document, but also something that we can continue to learn from and innovate from. Um, And I thought it would be helpful to really describe the steps that we took to work through what was an in-person training into a digital space. Great. And I'm curious from each of you, maybe starting with Sarah, um, maybe what is your key takeaway or maybe your key lesson learned about remote adaptation? Uh, Oh, that's a big question. Um, It's a big one. (laughs) uh, I would say it's possible. I think proof of concept is there and it's, um, it also requires a bit of a mindset shift if you're a trainer or a facilitator um, and a bit of a, yes, I can do this attitude. Um, I think it takes a little bit of, um, I don't know whether courage is the right word, probably isn't because it's not that big a deal, but it does require as a facilitator you to have that willingness to, to believe that it's possible to do. Because there's, there's still a number, I think, of, of trainers and facilitators out there that have not, either not worked out how to shift their whatever their training material is online um, or they don't want to do it online as well and I think there's there's no one that's really an expert at it Um, I think even universities that have historically had more like open university courses where they've been distance learning they've been doing it for a number of years I still think they're also trying to tweak and work out how to do this in in the most effective or optimal way so I think my biggest lesson then is actually to just just do it just try it um, and do it to the, the the best of what you can. Um, 
And I think the, the training participants or whoever it is that you're in the workshop or the training with um, will, will go with you. I think they are equally um, learning by doing, um, both in terms of the technology, but also just the very fact that they are sitting in an, in an online training or an online environment. Um, and it's a long period of time, this training. It's 10 days. So it requires a significant investment of time from them. Um, and they seem to be committed to do it. So if your participants are committed, then I think it's also very much possible um, as a facilitator to be able to do it um, as well. Um, I don't know if it completely replaces um, a, um, a some form of a face-to-face follow-up. Um, I know that supervision is an aspect in Problem Management Plus, and there's usually... Um, a process of supervision that has to happen after someone's been trained until they're kind of fully accredited as a Problem Management Plus helper. And every organization does that differently. Um, there's recommendations on how to do it, um, but it's it's an individual organizational choice how to take that forward. Um, but for example, capacity building in things like training of trainers or master level trainers or however you have it in your capacity building approaches in your organization. Um, I think that's actually remains quite challenging to do. Um, and I also know that some organizations have approaches is also to have like online or e-learning courses, a bit like a self-learning type course that you do, and then want to couple that with um, much more on the job supervision. And that's been kind of their way of going online, but also having a bit more of a blended learning or a hybrid um, approach. Um, so I think there isn't really one size that fits all for every organization um, or even for every trainer. Um, but I'm a big fan of the just trying it out and learning by doing, because I think that's how you'll work out what fits for you and what fits for your training participants and the organization that you represent as well. So it sounds like there's a fair amount of, you know, you mentioned bravery before, and it, it does sound like that. And I can, I can, um, maybe attest to that as well, because when we first embarked on this journey, Adam and Orso, I think you know that I was not firmly convinced that it was possible. I was really, um, I'm such a big fan of face-to-face human engagement, and I just, I wasn't sure that it, it would be possible, and I agree with what you're saying, Sarah, just kind of getting out there and 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 being vulnerable in a way, and, and putting yourself out there as a trainer, um, and, and your participants, you know, they're also new to it. So kind of learning as you go and, and finding what works for you, I think. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that, Sarah. Yeah, and also being perfect's boring as well. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's nice to make a mistake. It's also how you learn. It's just if you get to do it in a, in a safe environment, that's the important thing. Yeah, and I think that there is a lot of space for that during, you know, between the 20 days between the two of us. Um, I think that I know there was a lot of times where I felt like I was making mistakes as I was going or it wasn't the right way of doing an activity. And I learned a ton throughout the process um, about myself as a trainer and about, you know, how to train in different styles. Um, But absolutely, it it is boring to be perfect. And I think, um, you know, that shows through a screen as well when we're able to be a bit human and a bit um, more able to show kind of who we are as, as real people um, breaks down some of those barriers and allows for some of the, the connectedness that we've been talking about. Kelly, if I can just jump in, I think it was those moments where things did not go as planned and so perfect that actually led to the greatest coming together as a group and 
the most learning and the most innovation. I mean, I think that's part of that openness or bravery that people do need to think about. I like, I like thinking about that frame because I think what we found was that, you know, when we deviated a little bit from the schedule and exactly how we were going to do things and allowed for a little bit more conversation and reflection and questioning, it was at actually those moments that I think led to the most growth and innovation about how we could do this differently. Because I think we were all coming to this from just trying to replicate. We all love in-person trainings and we were trying to do, or at least that's how we know how to do things. And I think we tried to bring that model and superimpose it onto the digital space. But when we bumped up against the differences and the realities of what it's like to learn digitally, it forced us into some of these spaces where uh, we had to rethink things and had to reimagine things. Um, and when it wasn't so comfortable and when it wasn't working properly, I think we ended up having some really great exchanges and shifted and pivoted in some important ways that ultimately led to, I think, an even more effective training. Yeah, and Adam, with with our group, we learned, you know, originally when we started um, planning for the training, we had thought, okay, four hours online Zoom training, then four hours offline activities, and that's going to give everybody enough space away from their screen, but still the amount of time to engage with the material. Um, and we learned pretty early on that that what we had envisioned as kind of this perfect plan actually was a bit backwards um, and that people were actually craving a bit more of the um, synchronous or the the online together experience versus the, okay, I'm going to go off on my own and do my quote unquote homework. Um, yeah, that was, I think that was for me a huge lesson learned about, you know, me thinking that I knew what everybody would want and actually it was quite the quite opposite yeah, for me too. I mean, I thought people would prefer having that time off screen to do their own self-guided work. And what we came to learn was that when their screens were off, they were getting pulled in a lot of directions from their schoolwork, from family members, from other demands. You know, and we were also at a slightly different point of where we are now in terms of COVID-19. And so I think what we ultimately learned was that, first of all, people still felt an important sense of connectedness when we were together online, even if we weren't in person, and that there was something about being together that really kept people focused and engaged in ways that was hard to sustain when people weren't working together. But I think that's where we need to continue to learn and to continue to adapt, because the lessons that we learned at that moment may not always translate across contexts or at other moments, you know, regarding online trainings. But for that moment in particular, it was an important lesson of, you know, going into a training with certain expectations and then learning and seeing something very, very different. Absolutely. Are there any other key lessons that you learned from this process? The key word for me is flexibility uh, and, and being very, very flexible with oneself and flexible with everyone else. Uh, you know, whether it was my daughter popping into the screen from time to time or Wi-Fi connections going out or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, I think in addition to that sort of courage and bravery of trying something totally new, uh, really going into it with this expectation that, you know, the best laid plans are obviously not going to come to fruition the way you exactly imagine it. Um, and sorry, there was one other thing I was thinking, and just both to Kelly and Sarah in particular, um, I think baby steps are so important. Um, we know that there is such an urgent need to build capacity remotely, but at the same time, we want to get it right. And we want the learning to happen in a really systematic way. So the kinds of knowledge that we're sharing out 
is something that we've really done carefully. And that's something I really appreciate from my collaboration with IFRC was the, the care in which all of you take to think deeply about each step before you begin, you know, bringing things out in, in a much larger way. So it sounds like you hope that the article will ultimately allow for us to have documented and, and hopefully inspire others to um, go through the steps and to think through kind of thoroughly how they want to go about adapting um, problem management plus for themselves. And I think that's the key thing with the flexibility is is also to get it to what fits for your training participants and your organization. Because the how how it happened in New York, it was a little bit different. We were able to learn a lot of the things that happened in New York and take that learning to the the one that I was able to facilitate with um, with SOS Children Villages staff. Um, and I know that also you've also done as SOS internally additional trainings, and that was also adapted in a different way to fit again a different training cohort. Um, so I very much agree with what you're saying, Adam, with regards to the flexibility. Um, I think that in the article, we do outline some of the key steps that you need to think about in advance, like have that pre-meeting online with all the participants beforehand to go through some of the more specific and concrete questions, like how are you going to connect, you know, the discussions over number of hours online, number of hours offline that they would like, what time zone best fits everybody, if you've got people from multiple countries, um, et cetera. And also very much explaining things like it needs to take place on a laptop on a desktop, you can't be joining from your phone, for example, if you're going to be using things like an interactive whiteboard like Mural or, or Miro. So those steps, I think, are quite standard. And the answers to some of the questions that we highlight in the article will hopefully guide organizations, will give them their kind of their crib sheet or their framework to say, okay, these are the, the variables or these are the things that are important for this particular training group. And these are the adaptations that we then need to make for whatever that training package is that you're trying to deliver um, remotely as well. Um, but I do wonder, actually, I have a question for, for both um, also and uh, Adam, as to whether your organization, would you envisage ever doing a face-to-face training again? I do really hope so. Uh... So I, I relate to all you said, and uh, there is another word that I would like to add, which is uh, uh, this training has opened uh, like a sort of a new level of possibilities that we uh, we were not expecting. Uh, but let's say if I wear my more my manager's cap, uh, there is also a sense of responsibility that comes with uh, carrying out training completely online. With people, for instance, people that, that Sarah, you have been training in uh, in Africa. Uh, I never met them. I I only met them online, and also the the circumstances of their lives is 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 completely uh, something that I don't know. I can't really say that I can. It, I do agree with the sense of connectedness, uh, feeling part of a group. But uh, not being in the same room physically, not being able to share uh, the kind of, uh, if you like, of intimacy and closeness that comes also now with uh, attending a training for for over two weeks uh, together is, uh, I think, is part of um, the sense of humanity that uh, gets a little bit lost when uh, when you do this kind of training. And I'm really, I'm really happy that we managed to do it. But I do sense that we we need to find ways also to to include that part. Uh, 
So that, that for me is a challenge and I hope that the future will, uh, in the future we will be able to do both things, uh, both remote online training, but also face to face and find a, a nice equilibrium between the two. Adam, what about you? What's your sense? My sense is that I would love to see us take the best practices and lessons learned from this time and, and to continue to innovate from them, um, while also hoping to very much be back in person for in-person trainings again soon. But I think now that we are starting to develop tools and resources online, it would be great, even if it's incorporated into in-person trainings, for us to think about how do we even enrich what we're doing in person with some of these online strategies. So um, just as an overall theme, I would love to see even more flexibility about how these trainings could be shared, You know, whether they're entirely online, in-person, or some kind of combination. Mm, that's really interesting. And you know, Sarah, I'm curious from your perspective, um, I think one thing we didn't really touch on is what does a day in the life of a remote training look like? Um, so I'm curious, do you mind walking us through a little bit what a sample day might look like and, and how it might be different from a face-to-face? Yeah, so if you were, for example, the, the famous Sudeshna Mahata, Shona, as we know her, she was our digital facilitator and my co-facilitator for the SOS trainings. She was um, sitting in New York. Um, so she had the unfortunate time zone um, where she was kind of up at five o'clock every day because that's when the training started at six o'clock for her, um, a.m., six o'clock in the morning, New York time. Um, but then if you were participants based in um, in the Africa region, which a number of them were, and in Europe, which is where the other participants were based, we actually had the training running in the afternoon time. So it's anywhere from like midday through until six o'clock in the evening or from like two o'clock in the afternoon to seven o'clock in the evening, depending upon where you were in that the, that time zone. So kind of plus GMT to, to kind of plus two GMT. Um, and that meant that a lot of them had work commitments in the morning. Um, so they were able to to do their, their all their other SOS work in the morning. As I said, about 60% of the participants were still in the office working um, and the others were at home working. Um, but then the, the training would, would start often with like an interactive activity or exercise um, to get the group together again in exactly the same way you would do it in an, in an uh, face-to-face training. So I would get them to like um, answer a question, um, like, a, um, like a thought for the day type question, or I get them to, to draw a picture um, in, with coloring pencils and then to show it up online. And then we would actually just start with uh, with the kind of the agenda for the day. Um, and um, that usually the first session was usually looking at a review of the work that had been submitted um, before, like the homework. So the kind of the two hours that they were doing offline, um, so what were some of the problems or some of the difficulties that they were um, going through? And that would be done more in a plenary discussion session. And we also had a, a separate we were using Google Drive. Um, with this training group. Um, so they were uploading their kind of homework, if I can call it that, or offline work onto the Google Drive. So I could then go through and check it. Um, so I had an overview. Um, that's what I was doing in the morning is training preparation each day. I had the overview of, of how they had managed that offline work and I could see where some of the problems were going to be. And then I knew that that's what I had to focus on the following day in the training. And then we would actually then go into kind of whatever that relevant section was as part of Problem Management Plus. So it might be the session on managing stress or on strengthening social support. Um, and then we would have a mixture. I w- the way I tend to train is I, even if it's face-to-face training, 
I tend to have a kind of a theoretical part. So you give the theoretical concepts or knowledge, which in problem management plus it's it's grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy um, is one of the psychological techniques. And then I would always do a demonstration of the technique or the skill that I wanted to show them. I would either do that live and I would get one of the participants or I would get Shona to be the recipient, um, like the either the usually the client role and I would be playing the, the PM plus helper role. And I would then online in front of the camera demonstrate the skill or the approach that I would want them to do. And then we would discuss it and then they would actually go into groups and have the opportunity to directly practice it. Um, themselves. And that practicing would then come with observation and with the opportunity for them to ask either Shona or myself for support by calling us into the, the breakout rooms. And then we would usually meet back together again. We would have breaks built in in between. We had two or th three breaks built in during the day. Um, and sometimes the breaks were completely free from the computer. And other times there were breaks where then I would lead like a relaxation exercise or I would lead a movement exercise with them. So some stretching or some of them would play music, for example. Um, and then we would go on to like the, the second part of the day, which is usually another skill or they'd be watching a demonstration video of the, the skill or the technique that we were doing that particular day. Um, and then there was usually um, some more group work or group exercises that I would give them to do that were a little bit more theoretical again. Um, and actually by the, the second week of the training, um, most of the participants were actually very familiar with the mural board. So they spontaneously um, wanted to use it when they were doing the breakout room stuff. So um, Shona had set up these incredible templates on mural, which she and I were using for the set sessions that we had in our agenda for the day. But it actually turned out that it was a whole other section of the mural board, which the participants were kind of freestyling and were using it when they were having breakout sessions. And actually, a lot of the participants went on to use the mural interactive whiteboard when they were doing the full role plays as a practice um, with the clients um, as well towards the latter half of the course so from kind of days eight to ten as well um, and that was really lovely to see um, and I I think it also gave a bit more it, it yeah it gave a bit more life to the group work so it wasn't just oral it was it was also an interaction with visual stimuli um, in the breakout rooms um, as well and then we would usually close each day with kind of the the offline work that was to be done for the following day like the homework um and where they and logistics on where they were to save it or which links they were to go to or, or where they could look for stuff online if it was like go and find out this piece of information online somewhere for example and then you have to multiply that times 10 for the 10 days <laughs> <laughs> fair amount of observation and work there um did you feel you know during the process of training um, but also in the supervision that followed, all of this was remote. Did you feel like you were able to get a, a clear sense of people, you know, their knowledge and their confidence and their skills in uptaking PM plus? Was that all possible remotely? Yeah, I think, well, yes. I mean, the, the I don't know. I'd never know if it wasn't. I mean, I know, I know what I know, if I can say that. Um, so I am, I am confident in, in the, the the PM plus helpers that were kind of produced as an outcome from from the training but what I don't and and I was there for the 
for three supervision sessions for um, each group because the group was quite large. We had 16. We ended up splitting it into two groups for supervision. I had a giraffe group and a goat group is how I called them. Um, and then I was there for the first three sessions of their supervision. And then um, SOS, Children's Villages, MHPSS staff were taking over the other supervision and, and ongoing. And it's still going on to this day. But I, what I don't know is is how they are interacting with clients directly because I can't observe that. I can't do a direct observation. Um, and some of the SOS participants are, are providing PM Plus themselves remotely. So they're seeing someone on Skype or whatever. And others are actually directly seeing a client face-to-face -face because it's possible in those respective countries and contexts. Um, and I, that's the missing piece. So as I said, proof of concept is definitely there. In terms of client outcomes, um, I know that SOS is able to document and is able to, to track kind of improvement in well-being and the various questionnaires and surveys used. Um, but I, as a trainer, that's kind of the missing piece is that direct observation that I would do and have done in the past when I've done this training. Yeah, sort of that live supervision element where you actually get to observe them um, maybe in a session in real life with the person um, and, and how they're how they're implementing. And I agree that's um, with the group that I that I trained and supervised, we we were able to do our supervision journey together. Um, so I was really lucky and I was able to kind of continue to get to know them and, and build that relationship with them and through role plays and things like that and case presentations, it was, you know, I was really able to see how they had integrated what they had learned, but I agree with you, Sarah, um, that that element of being able to observe um, in real life, it just wasn't, it wasn't a part of it, um, but it's always great that we can include that. And you talked about um, kind of client outcomes and um, Adam and Orso, um, shifting to you just a little bit is um, kind of one of our last questions. Um, I know that things are quite preliminary in um, the outcomes of the actual service users, but can you shed any light onto whether or not um, things are going well or, or, you know, what you're hearing back from the participants? Well, if I could just say, I mean, two things, Kelly, to the question that you just had asked Sarah, which I think is really important is one, I think, um, you know, Great collaborations between implementing partners and training partners and research partners, I think, really revealed um, themselves throughout this process due to some of the limitations that you both just mentioned. And even though we're not able to watch the live implementation of this, one of the things that we've been finding to be so helpful is just the research that we're conducting and doing really extensive qualitative interviews, both with the helpers delivering it, but then also with the people receiving it. And so really seeing this as a first step towards learning a lot more about how we can train people remotely and then how effective um, and relevant people feel like this intervention is for the problems that they're experiencing. And so certainly live, I think, is better than indirect ways of learning, but the qualitative research we've been doing, we've been finding to be really helpful in terms of getting a sense of the acquisition of skills and the kinds of things people were able to develop competencies in. And then also just to say, I think there's a lot of interest right now in studying and learning about ways that we can assess competencies for capacity building interventions. And so hopefully those kinds of things will further get integrated into online trainings as well. Um, in terms of our outcomes, I would say we are pleasantly surprised at knocking on wood and other things. I don't know if people can hear that on the podcast, um, but 
the first thing we wondered about was would people even want to do this? If they started doing this online, would they continue to move through all five sessions, including the assessments? And then would we see any changes in symptoms? And then, you know, while it is very much preliminary um, and we are still collecting more long-term follow-up data, we are seeing in our small sample, we are seeing, first of all, that people seem to like the intervention itself remotely. They continue to show up to all of the sessions. And in terms of symptoms and self-reported levels of distress, we're seeing really encouraging outcomes that by the, you know, from where they begin uh, to where they end, they are showing a reduction in distress for the problems that they identified at the beginning, but then even more broadly for other, you know, symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of distress related to COVID-19, people seem to be improving in terms of their overall psychological well-being, which is really encouraging. Or so I'm curious to hear how it's going for you in a different context. Yeah, well, and actually we are working together on this with Adam and uh, Kendall uh, Pfeffer. I I hope I'm saying his surname correctly. So they are helping us out um, uh, assessing the client's outcomes. That is uh, possible, is also possible uh, remotely, of course. And we also have very encouraging, although preliminary and partial uh, outcomes, especially when it comes, for instance, to measures such as uh, the PHQ-9. We really saw a, quite a dramatic uh, improvement, which is uh, really encouraging. Our problem, and that is something that we definitely want to explore further as we as we keep doing uh, PM plus and we keep doing it this way is uh, is the question of fidelity and uh, how actually the intervention is um, uh, contextualized and adapted in um, in all the different countries where we are providing it so there are many let's say venues new venues that need to be explored but in a, in a way this is very exciting and um and I'm quite confident that uh, we, we can find also that new creative ways to do that. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that's new, you know, and I want to thank you, um, Adam and Orso, because I know without the two of you, um, IFRC, I don't know if we would have naturally gravitated towards adapting um, PM Plus to be remote. So just a big thanks to you guys for, um, you know, dreaming up this idea of, of conducting the training online and then you know, as you said, Orso, there's there's a lot to learn. Um, this is kind of a first step, and we've learned a lot, and we continue to learn a lot um, each and every time we we deliver these trainings. Um, and I think, you know, I know I could talk all day long about this process, but I'm curious, um, just as we wrap up, uh, is there anything else that I haven't maybe asked you directly about or anything else you think is important for those who are listening to know about Problem Management Plus um, done remotely. No, there's nothing further from my side. No, I mean I can also thank also and Adam, thank you for pushing us along, but also thank you for the extra work, um, and also thank you for the extra request that we now have as IFRC um, to do this, um, also with other organisations um, as well as our own, our own national societies um, as well. So thank you for the extra workload. <laughs> Yeah, I can echo. Thanks so much. Um, or so, did you want to chime in there? I really, honestly, I really would like to thank you because you 
the work you did was incredible. And um, I think it's also really nice when uh, two big organizations like FSC and SOS in this case, and the university, uh, New School University, all participate together. Uh, the sense of openness and, uh, and the willingness also to share now what you created uh, was really, really, really nice and really, really positive. Uh, so in that sense, also from an organizational point of view, I am I'm extremely happy about this, uh, this collaboration. Yeah, I, I agree. And just to say that if I, if I think back to when we began having these conversations, um, sometimes the best ideas really do emerge when the needs are just so acute and so real. And Orso and I were really brought together because we knew we needed to find some way to respond to the stressors and the challenges and the losses that were taking place during COVID, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, Orso, you and I were having a lot of conversations about how do we do this? And we are just so grateful to the IFRC, to both you, Sarah, and Kelly for, you know, raising your hand and saying, yeah, we are, we're open to thinking this through with you. And then, you know, going on this journey together, because at the end of the day, I think we were all just really wondering about how do we provide good support, careful support for people who need it most right now. And hopefully this is the beginning of us learning about ways that we can do this. Absolutely. And so our article is coming out in the Intervention Journal. It's um, quite the title, <laughs> uh, Building Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Capacity During a Pandemic, the Process of Adapting Program Management Plus for Remote Training and Implementation During COVID-19 in New York City, Europe, and East Africa. Um, I know for myself, um, you know, we've talked a bit about this, but the main drive behind writing this article and, and taking the time to document our lessons learned and how we went about it is really so that others can can take it on and hopefully, um, you know, scale it out as much as as much as it can. Um, and so, I don't know if you guys have any other um, hopes and dreams of what the you know you hope the impact of the article might be um, beyond that. But I know that it was a real pleasure writing it with you guys and and just kind of consolidating all of the knowledge and all of the lessons that we've learned together through this process. I agree. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Thanks, also. Thanks, Adam. You have been listening to The Heartbeat of Humanity, a podcast series for Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement staff and volunteers about mental health and psychosocial support. In this episode, we explored adapting problem management plus training and implementation to be delivered remotely during COVID-19. You can find more resources about mental health and psychosocial support on the IFRC Psychosocial Center website. Resources include manuals, webinars, policy documents, program materials, educational videos, and information about upcoming trainings. My name is Kelly McBride, and I hope you have enjoyed listening to this Heartbeat of Humanity podcast. Remember that mental health matters.